Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. Sound wonderful. Sorry about that. But it is going around. Tis the season, as they say. Well, good evening, all of you. It's good to, to be back. It, it was a couple of months ago when I had a chance to kind of do a survey over the first seven chapters of Joshua. Moved rather quickly, obviously. We didn't do line by line, but looked at it from a helicopter view over the, the theater of activity of the, the war that took place. And we watched as uh, Joshua uh, moved the sons of Israel from the east side of the Jordan River over to the west side. Uh, as you remember the story of Moses, Moses took the children of Israel out of Egypt and turned an 11-day journey into 40 years. Um, didn't quite make it to the promised land because of his disobedience. The Lord said, you're not going to cross over. And, uh, but he did give, the Lord did give Moses the opportunity to see the entire promised land from Mount Nebo. So from up on Mount Nebo, he got to see north. Is that in the back there? Got to see north up uh, some 100 miles, and he got to see west, about 50 miles to the Mediterranean, and then south uh, towards Egypt, another 90 miles, a total expanse of the promised land, and then the Lord took him home. And then it was the handing off the, of the proverbial mantle of leadership from Moses into Joshua. And as we ended up last week, or last week, last time I, I spoke, we saw Joshua crossing over miraculously across the Jordan River with the Lord rolling back the river for some 20 miles and drying up the riverbed to allow all the people of Israel to cross. And then they set up camp in Gilgal. And then from there, that miraculous victory at Jericho. Without a sword or a javelin being raised, the Lord brought it down with shouting and with the shafars or with the horns blowing. We know that story well. We talked about that, and that was what I called the thrill of victory. But it was followed not too soon afterwards, but it was followed afterwards with the agony of defeat. So what happened in chapter 7 was much different than what happened in chapter, chapter 6. With the victory of Jericho came the defeat at Ai. Ai as it's spelled in the Bible, but Ai as it's pronounced in Hebrew. And what happened there was that Joshua, quite frankly, didn't go to the counsel of the Lord, didn't ask the Lord for counsel on this. And he did on, of course, Jericho. And he would as other battles came, but not this one. He had sent two spies over, just like he had done previously by sending two spies into Jericho. He sent two spies to Ai. They came back to him and said, uh, Joshua doesn't look like much of a problem. Let our men rest. Just send about two or 3,000 in there. We should be able to take care of them. It's a piece of cake. Uh, unfortunately, um, Joshua listened to that without going to the Lord, sent about 3,000 men in, and those valiant warriors of the sons of Israel got spanked. Uh, Ai opened up their gates. Their valiant warriors came out, killed 36 uh, sons of Israel, and chased the rest away with a tail between their legs. A very depressing defeat. Uh, the men of uh, the sons of Israel were devastated. Joshua was dismayed and devastated and depressed and 
hit the ground face first and just ask the Lord, why, why, what happened? You know, this is supposed to be a land that we're going to take over, the promised land. What happened? And Lord, what are they going to say about you? Like, God can't stand up for himself. What do they say about you? And you know what? Anymore, they're going to feel like they can defeat us. We've lost our edge. What are we going to do? And essentially, and I'll paraphrase it, God said to Joshua, get up. Get up. Clear the sin in, the, in your camp. And then let's get going. You've got a problem. Somebody disobeyed. Somebody broke the band. And if you remember, Joshua had a band, I mean, uh, Jericho had a band over it that the sons of Israel were not to take anything for themselves. The gold, the silver, the items of bronze and iron were to go into the treasury of the Lord. It's the first battle, the first fruits and it, on this side of the Jordan, and it was to go in to the storehouse, to the treasury of the Lord. And somebody broke that ban. Now Joshua was unaware of that until that moment, and then he went through and he, of course, started drawing lots as they did back then and narrowed down you know, the multitude of people down to the 12 tribes, down to one tribe, down to a clan, down to a family, down to Achan, and said, Achan, why did you do it? Finally, Achan confesses, but he does it until all of that time of whittling down. And he says, I saw, I coveted, I took, and I hid. And for that, he paid the ultimate price. Joshua then got all the treasures that were there to make sure that they went back to the house of the Lord and put Achan to death. But not only Achan, his wife, his sons, his daughters, all of his livestock, his entire camp was burned. Everything destroyed because he did that. Not only did Achan's sin cause him and his family to die, but 36 valiant warriors and their families without their husband, their brothers, their fathers. I ended up last time to make sure we all know that we are in this together. That when Paul talks in four places in the New Testament about us being the body of Christ, it is not by mistake that he uses that analogy. That analogy says that whether you're a lung or a heart or a liver or a kidney, we work together. Because if you take your heart out of your body and put it on the table, that rest of that body doesn't do very well. And that goes the same for every other body part. When Paul says we are all with different gifts, with different administrations of those gifts, but all working together in concert, in unity, in unity together, he was serious about that. And that's pretty much what we see from the Old Testament in through the New Testament. We work together as a team. I know you guys have been marching through uh, Ephesians and talking about the full armor of God. I always am liking it to the police department. My brother, my older brother, was, uh, was on LAPD for 33 and a half years. He retired as assistant chief of police in LA. And with that, he was ahead of several different departments going up the ranks, including SWAT team. And one of the things I always remember in SWAT team was him talking about how they moved together in concert. It wasn't individuals. It was as one. It was one team. They would dress in all their gear, from their flak vest to their Sam Browns with all their equipment in it, to their shields, all the same illustration that you would hear with the full armor of God. And they would move together, protect one another. That's what we are called to do. And that's the message that ended up in Joshua chapter 7. They fell because they didn't work together. When one falls, 
we all fall. Paul tells us when we re- one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one suffers, we all suffer. So don't think for a minute that whatever you are doing in the quietness of your own home, in the isolation of your own room, that it is you and you alone because it's all of us together. And when there is sin in the camp, the Lord says, we've got to get it out. And New Testament word, we've got to confront our brothers and sisters. They have to confront us. We've got to sit down. We've got to repent. We've got to build this purity of this church. We are to be the spotless bride. Christ. Now we move into chapter 8. And what I want to try to do now is to, even though we touched on a little bit, is go through from chapter 8 to chapter 13 again, just on an overview basis. The old helicopter approach as we glide into and through this battle scene. Before I do that, though, two things I want to do is give you just a, just a brief intro and then let's pray. But my, my title for today is mostly dead. So last time it was the thrill of victory, and this time it's mostly dead. You'll see why in a minute, but who here recognizes that saying? Thank you, ladies. None of you guys. Oh, come on. Get in touch with the other side. This is from The Princess Bride. So if you haven't seen The Princess Bride, (laughs) you need to see it. (laughs) It was way back in the late 80s, but it is a cult favorite now still, and it's on all the time. And basically, you know, you've got all this, this uh, romantic comedy where you have the medieval setting and you have castles and princes and princesses. And, you know, you have the good guys and the bad guys and the good guy wins it's based on an old movie. But you got fun names like uh, the Pirate Roberts and uh, Buttercup and, you know, you get fun names and fun situations. But there is one, that's right, there is one scene in there that's especially interesting to me that I took out of that. And it just came to me, and the Spirit does that sometimes as I'm putting together my lesson, and you'll see why later. But it's in this section right about the middle, a little past the middle, where Wesley, the hero, um, is captured by the bad prince and is tortured in the castle to the point of death. His friends come and take his body out of there, and there's only one hope for him, and that's to take him to Miracle Max. And Miracle Max is kind of this wizard, you know, this uh, medicine man. And they take him to to Max, and they say, you know, our friend's dead. And Max looks back at him and says, oh, you know, you're you're such the doctor. How do you know, right? He says, as a matter of fact, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. And everybody knows if you're mostly dead, then you're still alive. Because if you were all dead, well, there's all you can do is go through his pockets and look for loose change. He is still alive. And the reason I bring that up is that the children of Israel are to go through the entire nation of Canaan and supposed to clear out the land of all these people. We talked about last time why. Why are these people to be cleared out and the sons of Israel to come in? Well, because these were people that were idolaters. These were people that sacrificed their children to their gods. These were sexually immoral people. God said, I gave you 420 years to change. You didn't. It's time for you to move out. Not you, Israel, because you're so good or righteous or bigger than anybody else. Not because you deserve to be in there because you don't. You're a stubborn people. That's why everybody over the age of 20 died in the desert. 
but because I made a promise to your forefathers, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, and because I have chosen you, but not for anything that you've done. That's why you're moving in and they're moving out. And so we see this transition happening, but they don't completely eradicate the country of the Canaanites. We'll talk about that before we end tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you as we gather together. Thank you for these men and women. Thank you for um, their faithfulness in being here. Father, we especially hold up Joe to you, especially as he is fighting this sickness. We pray for uh, clearing of his lungs, and we pray that his cough reduces and is gone. We pray for his health and his strength. And know that this illness causes a lot of fatigue. And Lord, I just pray that you bring him back to full strength so that he could be back amongst his class, amongst his friends, and to be able to teach your word to, to them. And Father, um, we just thank you for everybody that is here normally and can't be here for whatever the reason, sickness is or other commitments. Bless them wherever they're at tonight. Lord, I just pray that you bring them all back together again next week in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look at Joshua chapter 11. If you'd open up your Bibles with me or your devices, and I'm going to read through a few verses, and then we're going to continue to walk through all of this. But it starts out in verse 8 by saying, Now the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear or be dismayed. Take all the people of war with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given unto your hand the king of Ai, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to I as its king, um, just as, and his king, just as you did to Jericho and its king, and shall take only its spoils and its cattle as plunder for yourselves. Set an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to I, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and sent them out at night. Okay, well, it's really interesting as we start to take a look at this. Remember, they're, they're fresh off the battle of losing that first skirmish with Ai in chapter 7. And now Joshua has cleared out the sin in the land. Achan is gone. His family is gone. He has reconsecrated the valiant warriors. They're ready to attack. And instead of doing what they did before the mistake, just listening to the warriors and sent, or to the spies and sending up 3,000, God gives them a whole different direction and a battle plan. Now that he's listening to the counsel of God, God says, you take 30,000, not three, 30,000. And here's what I want you to do. Joshua, I want you to accompany 25,000 to the north, just in the valley that is right in front there to the north of the fortress of Ai. But I want you to send the other five around the back side. And when I say it's go time, I want you to send the 5,000 in as an ambush. Go time will be when you engage with the warriors of Ai tomorrow morning. And that's exactly what happens. Joshua goes out at night sets up camp with 25,000 in the valley that's between he and the fortress. And he sends another 5,000 behind I, between I and Bethel, which is the next fortress right down the street, not a very big one, but still right there. He is then stationed those 5,000 fighting men 
to be ready on call when he gives the signal. The morning comes, Joshua is there. He's got his men ready. As they start to move, the king of Ai wakes up early and sees the men out there too, rallies and musters his troops. They are still excited about the victory they had over Israel, oh, not long ago. Start feeling pretty good about themselves, I guess, because then they open up their gates and they just make a power run towards the sons of Israel, who engage them in the battle. And as the battle rages on, the strategy is that Joshua pretends that they are losing. And everybody from the sons of Israel is in on the plan, of course, and they keep backing up. And the reason they keep backing up is to draw the soldiers from Ai who have come roaring down the ramp and from their fortress. They're coming at Israel and they're fighting and they're going back and drawing these men back further and further and further away from the city of Ai. And as they do it, and it's far enough away, the Lord looks at Joshua and says, Joshua, now lift your javelin to the city. And as he does, the 5,000 waiting for the signal run into Ai. With its gates open, they go in and then they start killing everything in sight, burning everything down as the Lord told them to do. And as they start burning everything and the smoke rises up, the men of Ai, as they're fighting, turn around and see the smoke. They know what's happening. They turn around, but they have sent everybody that's a fighting man out. And there's not much protection back at the fortress. They turn back to start going back to the fortress, but it's too late. At that point, the men that set an ambush, 5,000 sons of Israel that were in there and killed and burned everything, are now coming out after them. And the valiant warriors of Ai are caught in the middle of the men coming out and the men from the valley that are now pushing in. 30,000 on these valiant warriors of Ai, and they get entirely wiped out. 12,000 people of Ai perish that day. 12,000. Completely wiped them out. And that was really because Joshua took the time to listen to the counsel of the Lord. One of the things that's important to us as we're going through pieces of scripture like this is not just to listen to the narrative, to the story, but what's the, theolo the theology behind it? And I think for us, not only the theology, but the practical use is that you and I as believers are in a war. We may not always see it or think of that. We are in God's army, and the enemy doesn't want any part of that. The enemy looks at you with a target on your chest, on your forehead, on your back. We need to recognize the idea of putting on the full armor of God is not just a metaphor. It is for protection because the enemy wants to knock you over. No, he can't take He's not going to possess you. He's just going to knock you on your rear end so that you are unable to fight the war to be able to share with those that, are, that have a veil across their face, that can't see Jesus Christ, that don't hear the Lord. He wants to keep that going. He doesn't want you to share with another person your testimony. He's going to knock you down and make you disabled, so to speak. We need to understand and recognize that our enemy is a clever enemy. He's been doing this for a long time. 
And I've heard some Christians say, oh, you know, I strike down the devil. Be careful. Be careful. He is a wicked adversary. He will fool you 10 ways to one. He's been doing this a lot longer than you and I have been on this planet. So with that, make sure that you keep your ear tuned in to the Holy Spirit. And the only way to do that is to keep our nose, our eyes, into God's Word. As we saw in Joshua chapter 1, and I'll just read it real quickly, chapter 1, verse 8. Um, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, Joshua, the Lord's talking to him. He says, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, then you will have success. Amen to that? We need to understand that this is not just a good story, that there is theology here for you and I to understand. If we want to fight a good fight, if we want to be able to stand up and stand firm and stay strong, we need to be in the Word. If we're not in the Word, and my favorite saying is, if you're not praying, you're going to be pray. So you either pray or be pray. You have a choice. It is free will. But I'll tell you what, it's not good to be in that position where the enemy is striking you and knocking you down. And Joshua felt it firsthand and saw the difference here. Well, I would hope that he would learn. Unfortunately, he makes another mistake coming up. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the meantime now, this stronghold of I is done. That is number two fortress. First Jericho, now I. This is the central campaign. Uh, you have this map. Some of you have seen this before. I'll point this out to you if it comes up. Here we go. In this map here, if you see right here in the middle here, Shatim is where they were camped before they came across the Jordan. This is the Jordan. Gilgal is their first temporary camp on the promised land side, the west side. And you see Jericho right below it. It's only a few miles away. And I just up the hill a little bit uh, over here. Bethel is there. This is the central area. They want to be able to cut off this central area in the central campaign to cut off the north from the south so that the kings and those two areas don't come together and battle the sons of Israel. A lot better to divide and conquer. And that's what his plan is. And it works well. But in chapter 9, the news has gotten out to both the south and the north that this Joshua is just tearing through the land. They're all fearful, both north and south. And when you go through this particular chapter, you see several things happening at once. Down in the, in the south, the kings have gathered together. They're talking about how they can form an alliance and go through and fight this, this huge army, this this uh, sons of Israel by the, by the hundreds, maybe even by the thousands that are coming to get them. They know Joshua will be coming to get them next. And as they get together, one of the, the, the part of the coalition is also whatever is left in the central area. And in the central area, the only thing that's left at this point is Gibeon. It is part of the alliance of the south. The problem is that Gideon has their... Uh, their own plan. Gibeon, excuse me. Gibeon has their own plan. Gibeon's plan is to survive. <laughs> they know that 
this army has not only cut through everything on the east side of Shahon and Og, but now they've already come through and conquered uh, Jericho and Ai, and we're talking about the fortresses that are really the capital of, of uh, Canaan and uh, a, a, royal, a royal fortress. These were strong guys that were in these fortresses protecting these lands, and Joshua just ran right through them. So now they're formulating a plan where they're going to get together, and all they have left in the, in the central coast is Gibeon. The problem is they don't know that Gibeon's already formulating their plan. And here's what Gibeon does. Gibeon says, we ain't got a chance. I don't care if we're with the south or with the north. We've seen what these guys can do. We not only have seen that, we have followed them from Egypt. We know who their God is. He separates the ocean. He separates the river. He has killed off all of these people. We don't stand a chance. So forget about the coalition. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend we're from another country outside of this area. Because Deuteronomy 7, and they know that, says we're not going to let you, Israel, mix with any Canaanites. We don't want you mixing with anybody else, Moses tells him. It is bad news because sooner or later you're going to start doing what they do. You're going to start worshiping their gods. We don't want that idol worship in this land, so we're going to have to eliminate them all. So these guys know that, so they go, well, how do we do this? Well, we pretend that we're from another country outside of this area. And so they build this elaborate plan that is a high risk, but they have no other choice. If they fight, they'll die. They join the coalition, they'll die. If they do nothing, they'll die. So what they do is they plan this attack where they take some old donkeys, some old mules, some old, they, they uh, dress up in old clothes, old tattered clothes and old shoes. They uh, take some old crusty bread and old wineskins and, and they look beat up and battered like they've been traveling for days and days. And they go to Joshua and Gibeon and say, essentially that we've come from a faraway country. We've heard what happened over in this area here. We know about your God. We want to join teams. We need your help. And Joshua's a little bit suspicious at first, and so are some of the men that surround him. And they question him a little bit. But here's where number two mistake comes in for Joshua. Only two that he makes during this whole battle. The one was with the first battle of Ai. The second one is he doesn't consult God for what is about to happen here. In uh Chapter 9, verse, let's see, verse 14, it says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and didn't ask for the counsel of the Lord. So they took some of the provisions that these nomads, these Gibeons, said from another country had, but they didn't counsel. They didn't take counsel with the Lord. And so these guys pulled off just a wonderful plan of deception. Joshua says, okay, we'll, we'll surround you with a partnership. We'll draw up a covenant. We will protect you. You will be part of the team. Um, your enemies will be our enemies. A covenant relationship with them. Problem is, these guys were lying. A few days later, Joshua finds out. He finds out three days later and goes to him and says, why? The rest of the chapter is devoted to that that says, what do you mean why? We saw what you've done to everybody else. We just wanted to survive. 
Joshua tried to change his mind and break his oath, but his elders said to him, you can't do that. You, make an, you made an oath before God. Joshua's made enough mistakes at this point. He's not going to make that mistake. So he says, look, it, I'm not going to change anything, but here's what we're going to do. We're not going to kill you, obviously, and we're, I've made an oath to you and a covenant, and you're going to be on our team, but you are going to be our servants for the rest of your life. You are going to serve us. And that's what they do. They're water carriers and they're wood carvers, and that's what they do. But they're surviving, and that's all that those in Gibeon care about. So that takes us really through chapter 9. Chapter 10 starts out, and it says, Now it came about when uh, Adonai Zedek, yes, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua was captured, uh, had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done with Jericho and its kings, so he had done to Ai and its kings. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were uh, within the land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than I, and all its men were mighty. Well, you know, there is the problem for the kings of the south. Now they're upset. They find out that Gibeon, quite to their surprise, has drawn alliance with the enemy. They, they are traitors. They are now with Israel, the very ones that we fear for. The kings of the south were counting on at least that royal city and at least that strength of Gibeon, and yet it's gone now. So what do they do? They devise a plan that they are, as the kings, gather everybody together, all the troops that they can, and they're going to attack Israel, but the first thing they're going to do is they're going to come up kind of the coastal route, just close to the Gaza Strip area. So it would be right in through here. And they're going to come up this route, come across and attack Gibeon first. You go, why are they going to attack Gibeon? Well, they're going to attack them because these guys were traitors. They want to attack them and see if they can not only defeat them first before they get into Israel, but also, I mean, to Gilgal or wherever Joshua is at the time, but they want to see if they can turn them back. They need that extra help. Maybe they could say, hey, now that these guys know what's going on with the sons of Israel, we can use them, but they're going to attack them first. The problem is, Gibeon not buying it. When the king and all the troops come up to start to attack, Gibeon sends out an emissary, an ambassador to Gilgal up to where the camp of Joshua is, and says, help, we're being attacked. And so quickly, we see Joshua muster his valiant warriors, move across at nighttime, and strike these kings. I mean, he just really, he lets it all loose and starts whacking these guys, and they're starting to draw back because they are overwhelmed by the sons of Israel. As they back up, and I'll show you this because I think it's kind of neat to see this is, the, this is the route that they took as they went through Gibeon. This is where the attack took place. They started pushing everybody back through and down south again. In this area, a couple of miraculous things happened. And you might have heard about them before. If you haven't, let's talk about them and address them. Because as Joshua is beating back the kings, the five kings of the south and their troops, 
all of a sudden the Lord unleashes a fury of giant hailstorms, hail rocks from the sky and kills more of the, uh, the southern troops than even Joshua and his troops are killing. And you have a lot of people that have tried to study this and said, well, you know, let's see the weather conditions and, you know, what, what happened during that time and what God just sent them down. I think it's a miracle. Didn't kill any of those uh, on the on the side of the sons of Israel, but it killed all of the, those soldiers uh, that were fighting on the side of the south and driving them back even further. This area becomes important because something else happened here as they get to Makeda. In Makeda, as they are pushing and continue to push the, the, the kings and the, and the troops back south, um, something else miraculously happens. Joshua sees that there is a big battle ahead of him, and he's not going to be able to finish that battle before nightfall. He doesn't want these guys escaping at night or getting more troops. He wants to take care of them now, so he, he just petitions the Lord to virtually stop the sun and the moon, and God does. He stops the sun from moving, and Joshua has a full day, another day to keep fighting at, at light, with, with the light full shining and full brightness, and that way nobody can go regroup, regroup, rest, or run away. The other thing that happens there, he keeps beating them back, all the way back down south. And as he beats them down south, the kings, the five kings, know that their battle is pretty much lost. They hide out in the caves here in Makeda. All five of them hide in a cave. While some of the valiant warriors and the sons of Israel see that, they tell Joshua, Joshua says, take some big stones and cover up that opening and trap them in there. We'll take care of them when the battle's done. The battle continues to wage on as it goes down to the south, and he takes care of everything down here in the south, wiping out everything. And when it's done, on their way back to Gilgal, their camp, they stop at Makeda, open up the cave, kill all five kings. They now have the south. Joshua and the sons of Israel have the central area, and now the south campaign is done. And now it's time to go back to Gilgal and to rest a little bit. And before they do that, they go up a little bit to the north here, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and they do what Moses told them to do, and that's to set up two places of worship. There they would have blessings and curses given. But that was important and part of the overall plan that Moses had always told them, and Joshua followed everything Moses said to do. They go back to camp at Gilgal, and in the meantime, the kings of the north are planning their uh, coalition. They're saying, look, it, we're out of options here, but we have a bigger army than the south did and the central coast or the central area. They have some 300,000 valiant warriors. They have uh, a number of, of uh, chariots, 20,000 chariots, some 10,000 horsemen. It is a big and an overwhelming military. Joshua and his men are a little concerned. But again, they go to the counsel of the Lord. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. Remember the first chapter, be strong and courageous. God continues to remind him at the beginning of these battles to continue to be strong. Don't worry about this. You've got this. I've given it to you. And here's the plan. 
I want you to send a couple of men up and hamstring those horses. Hamstring the horses. You hamstring a horse, it's not going to be running. It's not going to be any part of battle. But it will heal up and it will later on be part of what the farming area might use. But in the meantime, we're going to eliminate them from the battle. And I want you to burn all the chariots. And then you go after them. Now back in chapter 4, we see that there's 40,000 valiant warriors from the sons of Israel. How can 40,000 fight some 300,000? Well, it could be a miracle, or you can take a look at other parts of Scripture and realize that they still had another 600,000 men that were of military age and were ready to fight. So the sons of Israel had a lot of muscle. As they went in through the battle, the battle was a bloody mess. According to historian Josephus, who was both a Jewish and a Roman uh, historian, he wrote about this battle and said, basically, they were walking in blood. 300,000 men were killed during that five-day battle. And then Joshua and the rest of the sons of Israel continued to work their way in the north and continued to take the land up in the north. You see where the arrows are up at the very top, where it goes in different directions. That's where the kings of the north met. That's where Joshua met them by surprise, and he just wiped them out and then sent the sons of Israel to those different areas, those different cities, those fortresses, and killed men, women, and children, livestock, just as the Lord told them to do. So that takes us really right through chapter 11. Talk about chapter 12 for a little bit. Chapter 12 is interesting because chapter 12 then talks about all the battles that both Moses and Joshua were involved in, all the victories in the battles, and also uh, then goes into uh, really the chapter 13 and on um, how the lands are all divided. One of the things for, for us to take a look at is um, in chapter 12, though, or excuse me, in chapter 13, is that there are 12 tribes that are given parts of this land, both on the east and on the west side. Most people think it's just on the west side of the Jordan, but also on the east side. The Levitical priests didn't get a section of land or territory. They've got cities, 48 of them, because the Lord said, you need to be all of these places. You're not going to be in one place. We need to spread this around. And so he did. So whenever you see, sometimes there's 12 tribes or 13 tribes, if something doesn't make sense, well, there was 12, and then, the, of course, the Levites, they were the priests, they got cities, and they did their teaching and their preaching, and God spread the wealth, so to speak, that way. But here's what troubles me in these verses that we went through. Look at chapter 11, verse 22. Chapter 11, verse 20 says, 22 says, there were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod, some remained. Well, first of all, and it goes beyond kind of the scope of what we're going to be talking about, what we talked about today, or what I wanted to cover today. The Anakim, they're giants in the land. Remember way back 40 years before then, when, when down in Kadesh Barnea, down at the bottom here, where Moses sent his 12 spies up from, see if I can grab it here, 
from down in this area right here. When the sons of Israel and Moses came up, he sent them up in this area, ran right into giants. They went in through the land and they go, wow, we're like grasshoppers here. We, 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 we can't do this. Ten of the spies said. There were only two that said, we can do this. I mean, the Lord said we can. Who were the two? Joshua and who's the other one? Caleb. Those were the only two that were allowed over the age of 20 to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. Only two. Everybody else was under 60 years old. So it was basically a young group, so to speak. That's why there were so many potential fighting men when they visited the, the kings of the north and or the south. Um, but it troubles me because when you read those verses, you say, well, he cleared out everything except those areas. Just those two, there was some giants, some people that still remain in the land. Now take a look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years when the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in your years, and very much of the land remains to be possessed. Ah, Joshua was pushing 110 years old at the time. And he tells me, he says, a lot of the land is still yet to be possessed. Verse 2, this is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites. From the, uh, uh, Senor, uh, how, how would you say that, Joe? Shihor? Shihor, which is uh, the east of uh, Egypt, even as far as the borders of Ekron to the north, it is uh, counted as Canaanite. And five lords of the Philistine, the, um, Ga the Gazites, the uh, Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, and the Gittites, and the uh, Ekronites, and the Avites, Aviites or Avites. Um, these are the lands that still remain. Now remember, and I said mostly dead in the beginning, because when we read this part of scripture all the way up until this point, we think, well, he's, he's destroyed the, the central area, the south, the north. He's wiped out everything, and that's in fact what scripture says. But we've got to understand that parts of scripture are more written in hyperbole. It would be like saying, um, uh, gee, the... Uh, the Green Bay Packers just absolutely annihilated. They killed the, uh, they, they, they wiped them out. But we, you know, we did, they didn't kill anybody. They, they beat them by the score, right? So the hyperbole of that is part of what we see in Joshua. Actually, it's part of what we see in the Old Testament as well. We need to understand that not all the Canaanites were gone. As a matter of fact, if they were, God wouldn't have said, by the way, after you destroy everybody, make sure you don't marry any of their women. Well, how can you marry any other women if you've destroyed everybody? So they're still hanging around. The part that really is really kind of disheartening is that if you look at that map in the areas that they talked about, Gaza, the Golan Heights, and part of the West Bank. Guess what? Guess what problems we're still having 3,500 years later? They didn't clear them out. Not only now, but you know what? They were the bane of the existence of Israel forever. You ever heard of Goliath? The Philistines were always a problem. Joshua, 
This was all given to you and more, and you didn't take it. The Lord really, when you take a look at what he gave, was about 10 times more land than they ended up actually putting their foot on and keeping. If they only would have cleared all that out, we wouldn't have probably some of the problems that we have right now. Okay, I want to go through quickly kind of a recap by giving you this. Pass these out. It's not a test. Just looks like one. It's really kind of seven lessons that we've learned between these chapters that I want you to walk away with because I think they're important for us to... Good lady, I like that. You have it. Uh-huh. Okay. Let's, let me walk you through this because I think when we take a look at a course scripture, we want to take a look at theology, but we also want to take a look at what the practical use of some of this is. And I, and I, I want to just kind of review this, do this as a review as well. So the first one, fill in the blank, it says, be strong and courageous. Uh, look, we saw that in chapter one. We saw that four times. Three times God told Joshua, be strong and courageous. And one time, so the fourth time, but one time, um, although sons of Israel told them to be strong and courageous, they told them, we're going to follow you as long as you're, you're good to go, as long as you follow the word, as long as you do what Moses said. We loved him. We followed him. We will follow you, but only be strong and courageous. There's a reason that they said that. I mean, look at what you're just, you know, wandering around in the desert. Nobody wants to deal with you or bother you. But when you cross over and then you start battling people for their land, you better be strong and courageous. When you're ready to take the land, be strong and courageous. And I think it's a great message for us. I put down there Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11 also, because we need to understand that this is not a playground we're in. This is a battleground. And we are at war. Number two, be obedient. And uh, Galatians chapter five and six, walk in the spirit and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. We need to be obedient to the word. I started out by reading that review of chapter one, verse eight. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. We need to be reading, meditating, studying, listening to godly teaching and the word. We need to be filling our mind with godly things, not the ungodly things of the world. If we are digesting it, if we are assimilating it and living it, you will have a prosperous life. And I don't mean financially. I mean from a spiritual walk. If you are not doing that, don't be surprised by things come your way and upset your joy or your contentment, you, you won't have it. It's only found in God's word. Number three, be listening. Be listening to what? Be listening to the Holy Spirit. Be listening to those around you. I like Philippians chapter eight, or not Philippians, excuse me, Philip and Acts chapter eight. And that's where the story of Philip and the eunuch, where Philip is, up in Samaria in a great revival. Things are going wonderful. He's got, he's, he's sharing the Lord with everybody and people are coming to Christ. And all of a sudden he hears an angel tell him, get up and go down to this desert road. It's a, it's a, it's a desert road. 
Philip doesn't get up and say, well, no, let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Let me get together with my uh, elders or my, my Bible study group. He's listening. He is so intent on listening to that still, small voice. He gets up and he goes. And something wonderful happens. I, I always think about back in high school. I can still remember that far back. In the 12th grade when we used to have electronics where they used to do that and not worry about the liability, wood shop and metal shop and all that. But it was one of my favorite classes because we had an opportunity to make and build a crystal radio. You have never heard of that, I'm sure. You're not old enough to know about that. But basically it was a, is a, a, a first generation radio where you got these these copper coils, and you've got these transistors and capacitors. You had to follow a schematic. And, and then when you finally got it done with the little vacuum tubes, you could plug it in. It took us the whole semester to do, and every part had to be graded by the teacher and whether or not you were doing it the right way. You had to follow that map and solder every wire in place. And by the time it got done and it, it was a finished product, the final grade was turning it on to see if it worked. You had turned it on, and I could hear static. And I started moving the knob, and all of a sudden I heard the news report from Greenwich, New York. i never forget that. And I go, wow, I mean, I am tuned into this thing, and that's the only station I that you have to just finally tune it. And I thought, that's kind of like the Holy Spirit here. That you know what, he's out there, he's there, he's waiting to talk to you. But unless we fine-tune it by being in the Word, you're not going to hear that voice. And when you hear that voice, oh, it just lifts your spirit. But we will listen, we will hear him if we are tuned in to him. So listen for the Holy Spirit. Number four, be ready. One of the things that I see in the story of Joshua is that he was ever ready. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be on the alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to see who he can devour. Be on the alert. When you start studying some of the strategies of Joshua, you find out that wherever he moved, he sent guards in front and guards in back of the ark. He was always protecting. If he sent his valiant warriors into Jericho, he made sure there was warriors to protect the families. If he sent him into AI, there were enough to be able to protect the families. He was always making sure that not only there were people up front to do the battle, but people in back to be able to protect. As they circled Jericho, he had front guard and he had the rear guard. As they came across the Jordan River and the Levitical priest stood into the Jordan, there were front guards and there were back. Be on the alert. How do we stay on the alert? We pray. We're constantly in prayer, and we're constantly asking for those around us to pray for us. You've got a problem in your life going on. Don't try to handle it yourself. That's exactly what the enemy wants. You're not feeling well. Don't try to just muscle through it on your own. You ask for prayer. That you go well. You know, it's a, yeah. That's what we are. We are commanded to do. There is something. Uh, beyond what we understand, that the Lord wants to make sure we know that this is a resource for us. Number five, be humble. All of chapter four is devoted to remember. Don't forget to remember 
that you have done nothing to deserve this land, Israel. And I want you to remember it by when you cross, I want you to take from each of the tribes, I want each of you to grab a stone and I want you to put it right there at the Jordan or take it over to Gilgal. I want there to be 12 stones also in the middle of the Jordan River. That's so that when you see it and when your sons and daughters see it, and their sons and daughters, it will remind them what God did here today. We need to understand that the very things, the very ability we have to make money, to think, to be wise, to be able to live is from God. So often we think it's just us. It is not us. It is him. As a believer, it's all about him. We're thankful for whatever he gives to us. But we need to understand that humility comes from being selfless, not selfish. We're giving the credit to God. Number six, be mindful. Others are watching. Be mindful of others watching. You know, this is a lesson that I, don't, I think that sometimes we miss in this, but people were watching Joshua. Not only his own people, they said, we're, you know, you're not going to go from the, veer from the right or to the left. We're watching you. We're going to follow you as long as you follow the law. But all the people in Canaan were watching Joshua and Israel, those in Jericho, those in Ai, those in Gibeon, those in the south, those in the north. Rahab was watching what was happening. In chapter 2, Rahab, we see that she is the one that saves the two spies. Without Rahab, the plan could have all been defeated. Rahab tells them, oh, we have seen what your God has done. We saw what happened in Egypt. We saw what happened crossing the Red Sea. We know what you've done on the east side of the Jordan. And the people are melting. There is no fight left in them. We're watching you you would be absolutely surprised of how many people are watching your walk. Someday, not until you're in heaven, when you look back and you go, I had no idea my neighbor was watching to see if I would fall, if I would do something wrong. They were so tired of hearing what a goody two-shoes you are, or that you didn't cuss, or that you didn't hang out with the rest of the boys and go drinking, or, or that you didn't do these bad things. They're going, I'm going to wait because they're going to make a mistake. Look what happens in politics. Look what happens all around us when people run for a political office are always looking to see if I can find something bad in them. We see that in scripture. I'm studying the book of Daniel. Joe's done a fabulous job going through the book of Daniel with the man's group. I've watched it on YouTube if I haven't been there. But when you take a look at the life of Daniel, one thing that stands out, this is a man of integrity. Of all the people mentioned in the Bible, he's one of the very few, very few, that was righteous throughout his life. Very few. And you've got to focus on the fact that it's a man of integrity that said, hey, look it, I've got opportunity here. This king here wants to give me all of this. He wants to give me his food. He wants to give me his drink. He wants to give me... Just the run of the, of, of, of the house and not going to take it. Going to make a stand. And then the law comes by a little bit later and he's up in his 80s now and it says, hey, you can't pray to anybody else but the king. He says, I've been praying to my king my whole life and I'm going to keep doing it. It's a man of integrity, man that doesn't compromise. 
Be mindful. People are watching you. And the last one, number seven, be careful. Be careful. Never take your armor off. A good lesson for us is Paul tells us to put it on, but he never says to take it off. You don't take it off when you sleep. You don't take it off when you go on vacation. You don't take it off when you're not in church. You don't take it off when you're not in class. And you only put it on when you get around other Christians. You wear it all the time. What we're going through here is boot camp to fight the war out there. This is training all the time to go and fight out there. I talked about my brother, spent 33 years on the force. And um, his very first, well, the first two years, like they do with a lot of the young police officers, they put them uh, in vice. They're young enough to fit in with some of that crowd and they work on vice and he just still to this day won't talk about all the stuff that happened. Bad stuff. But when he first came out of that and went on the street, his very first call was just a domestic call. There's two people fighting in an apartment building, and he and his partner went to the building. And as they were going up to the second story of this apartment, walking across the little catwalk there, partner knocks on the door, and all of a sudden out of the right side in this little gap area, in the dark, in the shade, you couldn't see it. My brother just sees a movement and went into a defensive stance and an arm came down and he grabbed the arm and twisted it and put it behind the guy's back. Guy had a 12-inch Bowie knife. It's coming right down on my brother's head. And he says, I grabbed them and I put the handcuffs on them and I drug them down this first story and I threw them in the car and I closed the door and I started to shake. But not until then. And he says, he says, it was all just reaction. It was six months worth of boot camp from four in the morning till sometimes nine or 10 at night. It was watching videos of other police officers that didn't make it or made mistakes. It was learning defensive moves and tactics. Learn how to be able to fend for yourself if you were on your own. Everything from how to fire a weapon to how to be able to use hand-to-hand -hand combat. Actual hand-to-hand -hand combat. He did a couple of things with me. I was 16 years old. He practically killed me. Almost knocked me out once with a chokehold. It's like, what are you doing? I'm a kid, for Pete's sake. My point is that it all came from reaction. It all came from training, not from thinking about it. That's where we need to be as believers. We need to be so drenched with God's word so injected with his grace, letting it flow through our system so much that what you do and say and act is all because we have been trained to do it directly from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. We can just gather together as one body, as one group of believers, Father. Together as we battle the enemy out there, together as we battle the darkness. Father, I pray that each one here recognizes that they are a light to this dark world, that they are the very salt that you've called us to be, one that can stop the decay, one that can preserve the light. We don't in and of ourselves, but Father, we're like the moon up above. We don't have our own light. We reflect the light of the sun. So I just pray for each person here. I ask your blessing over them. I ask a blessing over their health and safety. In Jesus' name, amen.